And I'm thankful for the opportunity to speak with you for a while from the Word of God. As you can see on the screen this evening, we're going to talk about the question, how did Jesus promote unity in His disciples? When you think about your family, we all want something in common as it relates to our families. We want peace. We want to have harmony within our family where everybody gets along. God wants the same for His family. And we want that for the Lord's church, don't we? We want to have peace and harmony and work together and everybody get along. Who wouldn't want that? You know, really, when you think about it. Well, of course, there's always challenges that confront those goals. Even within a family where, you know, everybody's sharing the same bloodline until the in-laws come in, even there, you know, there are differences. And then you bring the in-laws in and they have different traditions and different customs and different ways and it can be a challenge and it's a blessing when success is realized isn't it where we have peace and love and harmony in our families same for the church I think probably arguably within the church our backgrounds are even more diverse than within a smaller family unit and those differences that we have different cultures customs ways etc those things challenge our ability to, to have the kind of harmony we know God wants us to have. And in thinking about this concept of what's a good way to cultivate godly habits that, that help make for more peace within a smaller circle of, of my family or the larger circle of my home congregation or an even larger circle of the greater family of God and my community for that matter, what can I do? <clears throat> and in thinking about that, I got to thinking about the kind of group that Christ selected as his close personal friends and disciples, 12 guys. We're going to talk about those 12 guys just briefly. When you think about them, it's not like he got a bunch of guys that were all cut out of the same cloth <clears throat> where it was a natural fit for them to all just automatically kind of jee-haw and like each other and get along. It wasn't that way at all. In fact, if we were just independent of thinking about the ministry of Christ, if we were just going to sit down and cook up a strategy of saying, we got to get a group of 12 guys together that are going to go out and promote this set of ideas that's going to change the world. We wouldn't pick the guys, okay, that Jesus picked, but he clearly knew what he was doing. Simon Peter was a fisherman, and he was a brother of Andrew. What does a proverb say about brothers? Brothers are born for adversity. It's not that brothers can't get along. There can just be a natural, what we call sibling rivalry. So he's a brother to Andrew, and as we read about Peter, we get the idea he's a outspoken, a plain-spoken, seems like kind of an impulsive guy. You know, that's not always the, the catalyst you need in the equation of people to, to, to create more peace, is it? But that's who and what he was. And Jesus, you know, he picked him. He said, no, you're coming. You're going to be a fisher of men. You've got Andrew, of course, Peter's brother. What little, we know very little about Andrew. It seems like he might have been a different kind of guy. We don't know for sure. There's John, who was also a fisherman and a brother of James. Some really blue-collar kind of guys here, right? James was a fisherman and a brother of John. And then you've got Philip. 
Nathaniel, also called Bartholomew, Matthew, a tax collector, who's also called Levi. And this is the real wild card in the mix. Because as a tax collector, he is more or less in cooperation with the Roman occupation of Judea. And he's helping collect tax revenue for an enemy power that's holding uh, power and authority over the Jewish state and the Jewish people. That's a guy that, that, that people who, who believe in an individual and independent nation of Judea are going to see as a traitor. And Christ picks him and says, yep, we're putting him in the mix. And then there's Thaddeus, also called Judas or Jude. There's James, some know as James the Less, the son of Alphaeus. There's Simon the Zealot, a radical Jewish party. You'll read him, at least I think in the King James language, referred to as a Canaanite. That doesn't mean like from the land of Canaan or the nation of Canaan. That's actually a different word that points to him being of the zealot party. And as far as who or what that is, that's the opposite of a tax collector. That's a guy who's a part of a radical militant party that thinks their, their national duty, the right thing before God and their fellow man, is to violently cast off the Roman shackles. And Jesus picks him and Matthew and puts them in the same room and says, get along. <laughs> you know, that's a challenge. And then there's Thomas, who was a twin, and then Judas Iscariot, the traitor. And as we read about him towards the end of the ministry, there's a comment made, I think it's in John's narrative, in the narrative of John's gospel, that talks about how Judas had the money bag, and he would at times, earlier in the ministry, take money out. So he's a guy that had a greed problem. Well, this is quite a mixture of people and quite, a, if I could say, a ragtag group of guys. And there is within this a mixture of blue collar, you know, white collar. You've got businessmen, the guys that ran a fishing business. You've got people on opposite ends of the socio-political spectrum. And Christ didn't just expect them to figure out how to quit fighting. Take that in for a second. He didn't just expect them to figure out how to quit fighting. He didn't just expect them to figure out how to kind of get along and have positive relationships. He expected their relationships to become so strong and them to become so close and them to care about each other so much that they could go out together and with the help of God change the world. That's a picture of his expectations for us and the expectations we have for our family in terms of that kind of closeness. Not the world. All of us, are, our families are going to go change the world. That's not the idea. But the idea that we all have that same kind of closeness and love and cooperation. So how did he take those guys and in about a three, three and a half year ministry get them from where they were to what they became? That's the question that come to my mind that I thought, well, maybe if I can answer that question, that'll help me and you know, help my family, help the church life and so forth. And I hope you find this study to be a blessing to you. So let's look at one thing he did, and he did it often. He taught love. He just talked to them constantly about love. 
And they heard him teach others about love. A great example of that is in Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Jesus said to him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is likened to it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So Christ taught love with such a powerful emphasis that he basically said, if you'll focus on getting that right, other things will fall into place. So he didn't just talk about love, but he really, really, really emphasized it. Think about what he said about it in John 15, verse 12 and 13. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. So this is powerful teaching because not only is he signaling to his disciples that he was going to die for them out of his love for them and for us, but he's also signaling them the expectation he had of the degree to which they would love each other. I was recently in, in a, a Bible study and we were talking about uh, passages that teach us to love, and we, we were reading the one where he said, a new commandment I give to you, a new commandment, and he said, love each other. And in that study, I made the point, you know, the Old Testament taught them to love each other. Moses' law even taught them to, to treat their enemy right. You know, there's, throughout the Bible, from beginning to end, there's the idea of loving people. What's new about Christ's command to love? So I put that question before the group and enjoyed the feedback that I got. And one, one of the answers that at least struck me as being close to really the, the truth of the matter, I'll share it with you and you can see what you think about it. The idea of loving is not new, but the degree of love that Christ asked for, that's what's new. He's asking for a full, self-sacrificing, self-emptying, ears backed all the way, all in level of love. He's telling these guys, he's telling Matthew, a colluder with a Roman occupying force, and Simon, the zealot that wants to overthrow them, he's telling you two guys love each other so much that you'll be willing to die for each other. That strikes me in the setting of who these guys were. That strikes me as a radical level of love as far as how the world sees love. But that's what God expects of his children. So Jesus taught love in a way that emphasized a high degree of love for each other. He taught against pride. Matthew 23 and verse 12, he said, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is a kind of principle that Jesus talked about several times in the Gospels. A lot of times what would give rise to this teaching would be an occasion where the disciples were arguing amongst themselves about who was the greatest. And he would respond with teaching that embraced this kind of idea of humbling yourself and humble servitude, which we'll talk about momentarily. But there are a lot of things that swirl together with this idea of teaching against pride. Because here's the thing. When he picked the guys and they got busy and started working, they did not get along at first. <laughs> now, I mentioned the times they were quarreling about who was the greatest. 
Have you ever tried to go through the gospel records of you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and count the times we find those guys fighting and arguing amongst themselves? In working on a, on a different lesson that's further down in the future, I've been looking at some of that, and I decided I was going to try to kind of get a count. I'm kind of struggling with it because some of them you got parallel accounts of the same instance, and some of them it's a record of a new instance. So it's going to take some effort. I don't know if I'll achieve that goal or not, but it's something to really think about. Because this group that he expected to get along so well and, and work together so well, Early on, we find them fighting constantly. <laughs> you know, it's easy to imagine from our perspective and our way of seeing things that, boy, that's hopeless. <laughs> he has all these lofty visions of how they're going to change the world, and here they are constantly quarreling about who's the king, you know. Jesus could see past the effects of all of his teachings, couldn't he? And so he patiently taught them. Guys, pride is a problem. Proverbs 13 affirms this notion, this emphasis that Christ put on forbidding pride. Proverbs 13 and 10, by pride comes nothing but strife, but with the well-advised is wisdom. He says, pride, all it can ever really do is cause trouble. And you know, that's true. It's true because God said it's true in his word. But as we think about that, with very much life experience at all, we come to recognize, yeah, that's kind of how it is. And so let's turn this thing around from pride causes nothing but strife. Let's turn that around and say, if there's strife, follow it to the root and see if you can find some pride. And don't just do that search pointing at the other guy. Look for your, your own, the potential of your own pride as well. And I think we'll get some answers about how to more effectively get along with others and work together, even with people that we're very different from. Jesus taught servitude, Mark 9, 33 through 35. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? This was one of those instances I mentioned where they were quarreling. But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Now I know with these words and other places where Christ taught words like this, he's teaching against pride. We can see that, though he doesn't use the word pride or humility. We can see he's teaching against pride because he's saying you don't have to be first in line. You don't have to be first. You don't have to be the best. What do I need to be? You need to be a servant. And so along with teaching against pride, he teaches in favor of humble servitude. And he emphasized that throughout his ministry. He didn't just emphasize it with his words. He practiced that, didn't he? When you think about how Christ practiced servitude, it might have crossed your mind of the time in John 13 where he washed the disciples' feet. That was an act of humble servitude, wasn't it? But that was actually pointing to a greater, more humble act of greater servitude on the cross. I mean, what greater humbling could you have than for the prince of life to humble himself to the death on the cross? And that's what he did. And so he didn't just advocate it, he demonstrated it. Philippians 2 
takes up the idea of, of servitude's value when in verse 3 and 4 he says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. There's the humility. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So I've got to let go of the me first thinking, and I've got to put a higher priority on the needs of others, and then I'm going to look out for those rather than for my own interests, and that means embracing a perpetual servitude. Well, when you think about, for example, a, a good family, and you think about that kind of attitude of servitude, the person who's always thinking of others in the family and always doing for them. Everybody thinks about mama and grandma. You know, that's, that's that kind of character we think about when we think about a good, strong family. And we think about who is it that's always setting aside their needs and thinking of others. It's that good mama and that good grandma. Well, who can't get along with them, see? When you've got that kind of character in a family, everybody likes to spend time with them. Maybe it has something to do with that humble servitude. Well, there's a lesson in that for you and for me, isn't there? And when the disciples would learn that, they'd learn to quit quarreling about who was the greatest. And they'd start thinking about each other's needs. Now look, it's always a challenge to get along. Okay, we've we talked about how that can be the case with family and with the church and in the community. It's always a challenge dealing with other people. And it's often been said over the last couple of years that things that we've been through, political strife, medical strife, all of this di different kind of challenges facing our society, I don't know anybody that hasn't felt a little more stretched in this department. Okay? And he's got an answer here for us. I need to think about the needs of others and what's good for others. Because I, I look back across the last 24 months and I think about times that I thought, boy, this, this is going to be tough. I've got to love and get along and be humble and serve and all, you know, and you're running into opposition and you're facing obstacles and your emotions are yanking you in a different direction. We've all felt that way. In the interest of being real with you, I want to tell you I've had times I've felt that way. Try to imagine Simon the Zealot trying to learn to put Matthew the tax collector's feelings and needs above his own. When it was ingrained within his political thinking to hate guys like Matthew and see them as traitors. So I think about that a little bit. Or turn that around any other way in this group. of You've got brothers, you've got guys in business together. You think any quarreling ever happened out on that boat, you know, on the Sea of Galilee? Learning to serve can help put out a lot of fires. Something else Jesus did was in his private time with the Lord in prayer, when he prayed to God, he prayed for unity. John 17, verse 20 through 23. He said, I do not pray for these alone, meaning his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and, and, you, <clears throat> and I in you, that they 
also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that, that, that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Christ puts a lot at stake in this prayer for the unity of his disciples. And what he puts at stake here is if they can achieve this, the world will believe these guys are real. And that God is real and that Jesus is his son. Our love for each other and peace among one another, that's our number one Christian apologetic, okay, if you're interested in, you know, defending the faith. And I know there are other important apologetics, the resurrection of Christ and the creation story and a lot of things, and those all have value. But our number one apologetic is how we get along. That's our number one evidence to the community insofar as what we find, in, at least in this verse. So who did Jesus pray to be one? Well, he prayed for his disciples. He prayed they'd get along. Did you notice he said, I'm not only praying for them, but I'm praying for those who will believe on Jesus through what they taught. Well, that's us. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died for our sins, was raised three days later because of Matthew's testimony, Mark's testimony, okay, Luke's testimony, and John's testimony. And the, teach, the things the other disciples taught, they're the reason I believe. I've read and examined their testimony. I've weighed the evidence, and I've drawn that conclusion. And you have too. We believe on Jesus through these people's word. Now let's think about that. Jesus is praying that we would be one, that we would love each other, that we would have a testimony. So the next time I feel challenged and I feel stretched, and I feel pulled apart and pulled in different directions, and I can't believe that brother or that sister said that, did that, whatever that, okay? I need to stop and remember, there was a time shortly before the death of Jesus that he prayed that I would get along with that person. I got a little extra motivation, don't I? That's not going to make all the problems go away automatically, and all of a sudden, hey, it's easy. You know, it gives us something to think about, doesn't it? Jesus also gave his disciples a common mission. And that, of course, is what we call the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verse 19 to 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So Jesus gave them a common mission. Go out and take the gospel to all the world, fellas. And after you baptize people, you stick with them. You teach them to be followers of me. So they went from this group that, you know, is so diverse and so much potential for strife and constantly having strife during his ministry, all the while sitting at his feet, learning, seeing his powerful example, seeing him practice what he preached. And they get to the end and they have this mission. And they succeeded. They carried the gospel to all the world. They baptized thousands. They taught people to be followers of Jesus. And we are here in our faith today as a result of their work. So what do we do? If we want to tap into that 
formula for success. It's really simple. We just do what Jesus did. Number one, we've got to emphasize love, love for one another. Colossians 3, 13 through 15. Here he says, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. There's a lot of teaching here where he's telling us what to do, and it's rich with application, but I want to focus on him calling on us to put on love as a bond of perfection, and how with that we bear with one another and we forgive one another. We've got to practice the self-emptying, self-sacrificing level of love that Christ advocated. Now, I want to share a little story with you, and I'll try to kind of flatten out the details, but give you enough information to kind of let you feel the experience that I, that I want to share with you. There's this guy that he's brother in the Lord. He's a friend of mine. We've been friends for years, and we typically got along just fine. A lot of things wearing on him like they're wearing on a lot of people. And one day he's talking to me. He has totally different views than I do about what the solutions are to a lot of our problems, okay? And you get into the realm of national things and political things, he's got totally different views than I do. He knows that. I know that. We never really talk that much about it. But he's on edge because of so much that's going on. And there's a lot of other story behind the part that I'm telling you. But suffice to say, he just really felt the need one day that he's just going to start dropping little bombs in the conversation, trying to bait me and just, you know, gouging and, well, this is what we really need, you know, and just, you can imagine how that went. I'd love to be able to have integrity while standing here and telling you I'm Superman, and that didn't bug me, but that wore me out slick because he knew how I felt. And I thought, you know, everything we've done all these years to get along has been working fine. Why, why is he wanting to mess with this? And I thought, you know what? Okay, number one, shut up and let him talk for a while while you can kind of unscramble the eggs up there in your head and figure out what to say. And then number two, I'm going to empty myself. So when it was my turn to speak, I stepped in and I said, you know what I believe about you? I believe all those things that you said and that you cherish and that you really hold to and that you just told me, I believe that you're saying that because you care about people and you really think that's what's best. Now, I'm going to tell you, I did not feel like saying that. That's what I said. And then I said, I know you understand I feel completely differently, and I'm going to ask you something. I'm going to ask you to recognize that the reason I have a completely different opinion is because I care very much about people, and I want what's best for them. And I think what's best for them is different than what you think is what's best for them. Now, you want to know how it went. You know, as always, well, how'd the story end? Well, that time it ended fine. It doesn't always. But don't be the reason that it doesn't end fine. And if you got to, you know, empty yourself and bite your tongue and do whatever, do whatever to demonstrate that level of love where you can kind of bear with the old boy that's intentionally trying to gouge you, you know. 
You can bear with that and you can be forgiving and you can have a bond when the conversation's over that still holds you together. Still intact as far as I can tell. Hope that works. It'll work if we'll all consistently try it, won't it? We've got to humble ourselves. Romans 15 talks about this in the first three verses. To a congregation where there's all this cultural strife of what days to keep, what meat to eat or not keep or not eat and all that. that a lot of cultural diversity there. A lot of maybe some ill feelings. You've got you know, Roman people and you've got Jewish people. A lot of baggage there. And he expects them to get along. He says, we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So he's saying, let's bear a little reproach here. Let's think about what helps the other person. And this is to a very diverse group, a very diverse congregation there at Rome. But that's a key for their success. They can do it. They can get along. They can love each other. They can be what the Lord's called them to be. And we can too. <clears throat> we've got to do, as the Lord taught, we've got to serve. Galatians 5, 13 and 15. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion of the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, that thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed, you be not consumed one of another. That sounds a lot like what the emphasis that Jesus placed on love back in Matthew 22, where we read earlier. And what's he saying? He's saying, if you'll focus on loving your neighbor as yourself, these other things will fall in line. And what will that lead you to do? The love will lead you to serve. And that's the same thing Jesus taught about love, isn't it? So we serve not because we're trying to manipulate and use the concept of servitude to get what we want, but we serve out of this self-emptying love. And that helps build harmony in the body. And what else can we do? Well, we can do what the Lord did, and we can pray for unity. Ephesians 6 talks about a Christian's armament for our spiritual warfare and one of those things that's part of our armament is what he said here about prayer. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Perseverance. That means don't quit. Keep persevere. Keep praying. Keep praying. Keep praying. Supplication. That's just request of God. What are we doing? Well, we're praying for all the saints. So you got your sick list you got someone to pray for. You might know about someone who's struggling with something. You've got someone to pray for. You've got people in the body that want to be what the Lord has called us to be. You never run out of needs and people for whom to pray. Lord, help us get along. You pray that with enough perseverance, with all prayer and all supplication, it gets a little harder to go out and be that guy. You know, that wants to stir the pot instead of calming it down, okay? And so there's a real formula for success there when he teaches us to pray. 
Something else we can do is what Christ gave them all a common task to do, and that helped them pull together. We can embrace our mission, can't we? Philippians 1.27, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. We're supposed to have strife, (laughs) but it's qualified. It's a strife where we're striving together. We're fighting, but we're fighting together against a common enemy. And that, of course, is Satan, and, and we're fighting against him in our effort to carry the gospel to the lost, just like Jesus told his disciples, you know, at the end of Matthew's gospel. So we have something to help us pull together to take our energy that might otherwise be wasted in quarreling and pull together for a common goal, not my goal, not your goal, not our vision, but the Lord's. See how he put it in Philippians 4 and verse 3. Not 100% sure who he's talking about here, who he's talking to, but there are others here in this context that are kind of part of this conversation. And he said, I entreat thee also. Who, who that is, I don't know who he's entreating, but he's entreating somebody, and look what he called him, true yoke fellow. Help those women which labor with me in the gospel, with Clement also and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. He referred to a fellow Christian as a yoke fellow. Well, that's language that speaks to beasts of burden or animals jointly pulling a weight, pulling a burden. That we're all together wearing the yoke of Christ. We're yoke fellows. And it calls to mind what's happening in this picture. I want to talk about this picture for just a moment. Um, these, these beasts, they're powerful. This is apparently some kind of a pulling contest with these oxen, and it, it looks like a, a heavy sled that they're pulling. Actually, a few years ago, I was in the Northeast uh, on some gospel work and got an opportunity to see a competition where some of this was happening. And there it was these monstrous Kianina cattle. Those of you who are acquainted with cattle will know that, and you, I think that's what these guys are here. They're big. They're very large animals, and they're strong. And when they hit the signal to tell those guys to pull, you see, you get, a, get the right angle where you look down the side of, of that carcass there, and that, boy, the muscles rippled, and I mean, they'd lean into that load, and here it'd go, and it's starting to move. It's just amazing to see so much power. And of course, there it's just for a competition, but imagine that put to practical purposes out in the field and working, plowing, what, blading dirt, whatever. You know, we all use modern machinery now, of course, but we can understand what's happening here. Now think about this marvelous power, this beautiful display of might from these keenly trained animals. Think of how that looks if one of them's put on one side of that sled and the other one's yoked on the other side, and they're, sli- they're pulling in opposite directions. You don't even see the beauty and the power. All you see is just this waste. It's just pointless. I mean, these great animals, they could do so much, and they're just wasting it, you know. It hurts to see so much positivity, so much power just wasted on such a pointless endeavor. But when they yoke them together as yoke fellows, to go back to the language of the previous passage, and these guys pull together their power and their might, it takes on a whole new beauty. 
It's just amazing to see that and think about that. Well, this is animals pulling a chunk of concrete. What's it like when it's the people of God yoked together, trampling Satan under our feet? You're saying, oh, we can't do that. Go back and read Romans 16. Paul told the saints at Rome, you guys are going to trample Satan under your feet. It's the power of God that enables us to do that. It's not ourselves. He gave us the formula. We've been studying about it in tonight's study. So instead of this pointless waste of our energies and this pointless waste of our talents and this pointless waste, <laughs> instead of all that, pulling the opposite sides of the load, we turn and we pull together. And then all of a sudden that power takes on a whole new beauty. It glorifies God. And carries the gospel. Jesus summarized it very well when he talked about inviting followers to become yoke fellows. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest to your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Christ says, learn of me. We've spent time this evening learning about Christ and what he taught about how we can work together. And so he invites us to learn about him as we take upon ourselves the yoke of following him. That means being yoke fellows, pulling together against the, the load of the task that God has given us to save souls, to carry out the gospel and to strengthen those that are saved, to teach them to be followers of Jesus. There'll always be a lot of work to do, won't there? Now, Christ could take this group of guys that it didn't look like at all. They ought to fit together or work together. And he turned them into something amazing because the beauty and the power of what he taught. Let's embrace that beauty and that power. Let's embrace those teachings. And let's walk carefully in them daily and pull together against this load of the task that God has given us. I hope you're blessed by our study this evening. I hope if you are not yet a true yoke fellow serving together with others for the Lord, I hope you'll think about your opportunity to become a Christian tonight. And if we can help you with that, we would love to do so. Or if as a Christian you need the church to pray for you, of course we would love to help you with that. If we can help you in either way, please come while we stand and sing.